following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. Okay, come on back if you would, please. Thank you. Come on back. <laughs> Apart from worshiping the Lord, the best part of the service has been sitting there, seeing a picture of yourself 41 years ago uh, that we weren't expecting, and then secondly, the little kids leaning over and looking at me so they can draw the picture. This is fantastic. <laughs> Chuck Swindoll, in his commentary on Galatians, said, uh, is it impossible to obey God's law? He says, if you were super disciplined and super committed... Aren't you able to at least obey the Ten Commandments? Come on. How difficult is it to keep yourself from murdering, to committing adultery, to bearing false witness? As you evaluate your own life this morning, ask yourself, you know, have you murdered? Have you been unfaithful? Have you perjured yourself in court? Chances are, this morning, most of you in the room are looking pretty good. You're doing better until... Until what? Until you consider what Jesus requires. Holiness means that you obey God's laws perfectly. Not merely externally, but also internally. What's going on in your mind, in your heart? The Lord Jesus loves us enough to give us the full force of God's law on the Sermon on the Mount. What does he say? Take a look at that passage listed on your outline. It says, Matthew 5.21, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, that everyone who's angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, You good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, You fool, shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. Wow. And you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her already has committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus says, obeying the law, the rules, is more than outward conformity. In fact, the law demands absolute purity of thought. It demands total purity of motives, your thinking, your intentions. When you look over again now with the Ten Commandments, it gives it kind of a whole new meaning, doesn't it? You think about it, using Jesus' understanding of obeying the law, all of a sudden, how many laws do you think you've actually kept out of the Ten Commandments? All of them? Most of them? None of them? Do you have the courage this morning to admit that you've broken every single one of them? We're not keeping any of them perfectly. No one here is without idols. Everyone in this room this morning has put people and possessions and priorities above our Lord Jesus Christ at some point in their lives. All of us have lied, cheated, lusted, been greedy, proud. All of us have been envious, angry, impatient, or rude. And those are the sins that we can remember. What about all the times that we've sinned in motive and speech and thought and heart and haven't even recalled it, not even aware of it? You are, and I am, a sinner 
corrupt to the very nature of our being. Now here's where it gets scary. I'm turning a corner here. Hang with me. You might have this wrong, so listen up. It's at this point that a lot of people expect me to say, well, let's, let's go through the Ten Commandments again and, and let's improve your performance. Or some of you might want me to dumb down the law in some way and focus on external obedience you know, only and until you start feeling good about yourself. But by dumbing down the law or helping you obey the law in some measure, all that does is turn you into a modern day Pharisee, a faking Pharisee. I would be training you in hypocrisy, training you in pretending, training you in pride. No, the law is meant to show you you can't obey the law. You can't keep it. You can't live good. You can't be good enough to please God. The law is meant to show you you desperately need to depend on the Lord. You need to turn to Jesus Christ. That's what the law was designed to do. Historically, God wrote the law through Moses because his people Israel were on a moral and spiritual decline from day one. I mean, compare Abraham to the sons of Jacob. That's four generations. So you've got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the sons of Jacob. And look at what they lost. They lost, first of all, their purpose. Abraham set up altars you know, to commemorate the Lord, to honor Him, to to glorify Him, the sons of Jacob, not once did they ever build an altar. Not once. They lost their purpose. They lost their unity. Abraham gave up the easy land to shepherd his sheep, to Lot, and, uh, in order to maintain unity. But the sons of Jacob want to kill and then enslave Joseph. They had lost their unity, had they not? Sure, they also lost in four generations their separation. Abraham got a wife for his son Isaac from the Chaldeans, not from the Canaanites, And yet the sons of Jacob intermarry and worse with the Canaanites. Just in four generations, they had lost their separation, their uniqueness, their holiness. Israel desperately needed the law. They desperately needed it in order to see their sin so that they would then see their need for a righteousness that comes by faith. That's what they needed. They needed to depend on God alone for salvation and only the law would show them that that's what they needed. That's what they needed. This is why Ray Comfort, some of you know him, the way the Master teaches that Christians share the law first. They share the law first. And not this gospel of like, oh, you, you need Jesus. Uh, you, Jesus will help you. Or you need God as if you could have some sort of sin-free salvation. He says, share the law so that when you do talk about Christ on the cross, unbelievers see their sin first and know they need a Savior. This is why parents spank their children in disobedience. How appropriate the children are with us. This is so they see their need. that They, they can't obey. They, they, can't, they can't be good without God. They need the Lord. Why can't they do it? That's the law. Understand, that's why you and I need the full force of God's law. Pressed upon us. Not as a means of salvation, but the law reveals your need of salvation, your need. And praise God, there is someone who has kept the law for you and for me. Christ knew no sin, did no sin, could not sin, and had no sin. Every thought, every motive, every action of our Lord Jesus Christ complied with God's law. Every one. In fact, Jesus Christ earned for us the righteous life 
that sin keeps us from attaining. When, when we're in Christ, we're clothed with His perfection. And therefore, we appear as perfect law keepers before the great judge. When God looks at us, He sees the flawless obedience of His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what He sees. This is the sweetness of the gospel message. Christ took the punishment for our sin upon Himself, and then when we surrender in faith to Him, He covers us with His perfect righteousness. We can stand in His presence rightly clothed. And here's the capper. You would never know your need of salvation unless you saw the awfulness of your sin. And you can never fully see your sin, nor your corrupt sinful nature without the law. Without the law. As Paul wraps up his teaching in Galatians chapter 3, if you're not there, please turn there. This week and next, Paul explains the purpose of God's law. The false teachers that are attacking the Galatian churches, they treated the law as a means of salvation. You keep the law, you get saved. That's what they treated it like. The truth that Paul is affirming is to see the law as leading to salvation. Leading to salvation. Last week in verses 13 to 18, Paul affirms salvation by grace through faith is superior to the law. Now this week in verses 19 to 22, it kind of hits different. Paul says the law is necessary, but not to save us, but to show us our need, our desperate need of salvation. In fact, before salvation, the law shows us our sin and our need of a Savior. After salvation, the law shows us God's character and how we can please our Savior from a new God-given heart that now wants to obey. So take a look at these verses and read aloud with me from your outline. Let's read it together, starting in verse 19, ending in verse 22. Everyone together, here we go. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based upon law. But the Scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. You and I need to understand the purpose of God's law. What is it? Well, the answer is God's law reveals our greatest need. Our need of Christ. Our need of salvation. If salvation has always been by faith and never by works, and it has... And if the covenant of promise to Abraham was fulfilled by Jesus Christ, and it was, then what's the purpose of the law? Well, Paul, in these verses, 19 to 22, gives us six reasons that kind of jump from the page, so that makes up your outline today. So stay with me. Kids, fill in those blanks. Here we go. Number one, the law was given to expose sin. The law was given to expose sin. Verse 19, he says, why the law then? Here's he telling you, why the law? It was added because of what? Transgressions. R.C. Sproul says, well, weren't there always transgressions? Of course there were. But the apostle is saying that it is not that the law of Moses replaces the promise to Abraham of salvation by grace through faith, but it quickens the promise to Abraham. What were the transgressions? Well, as the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the sons of Jacob increased, 
as their numbers increased, they decreased in morality in a big way. They excused horrible sin. And they deceived themselves into thinking that they didn't need a Redeemer who would justify them by faith. So God gave them the law, coming from Moses, as a huge wake-up call to remind them of their need for salvation by grace through faith. Was Abraham reckoned righteous by works, yes or no? No. He was reckoned righteous by faith. Well, everyone needs to come the same way, and he wants to make sure that Israel knows that they can't do it, that they're sinful, that it exposes their sin, so they would cry out for a Savior. That's what he wants. Look what he says in verse 19, the law was added because of transgression. Transgression, you know what that is, trespass, like you're going across the boundary that you're not supposed to. The law exposes your violation of God's character. The law brings to light your inability to please God. The law reveals your utter sinfulness and your inability to save yourself and your desperate need for a Savior. The law was never intended, write it down, for a way of salvation. It was intended to drive you to see your need of salvation. That's why he gave it to them. They desperately needed it. And when the law was given to Moses, its purpose was both practical and theological. Practically. Listen, a whole nation, millions of now freed slaves, they kind of need some rules to function by. Wouldn't you agree with that? Sure, theologically, biblically, practically, they they needed to bring order out of chaos. And it was given to this nation as they're departing from Egypt so that they would then maintain right relationships with one another and order instead of spiraling into total apostasy and total chaos. Theologically, the law was provided for God's people to have a clear expression of God's righteous character, what He's like. Exposing the Israelites to their own sinfulness and driving them to trust in God's mercy and God's grace. Now get this. The law not only reveals God's perfect character, but it also reveals the imperfect character of Mueller. Put your name there, would you? The law not only reveals the perfect character of God, but it also reveals the imperfect character of you. In fact, Have you noticed that the law has a way of making people want to break it? Have you noticed that? Sometimes your parents tell you kids, don't do this, and what do you want to do? Exactly what they tell you not to do. Right? That's what Romans teaches us. Romans 7, 7 says, I would not have come to know sin except for the law. I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Romans 5, 20, the law came in so that transgression would what? Look at what he says. What is it, Dave? increase but where it increase grace increases all the more paul's teaching that sometimes the law is a stimulus to sin and each of you know that's true come on would you confess please please this morning would you confess that sometimes you see a sign and that sign says do not enter do not do this and that's exactly what you want to do come on are you with me okay thank you thank you it's not just me you want to break in my favorite and gene's favorite is the Christian camp. We call it, we dubbed it, we'll never tell you the name of it, the no camp. Because no matter where you stood in this camp, there was a sign. There were, they were cool signs. They were wood burned in, you know, really nice signs. But everywhere you looked, if you looked north, south, east, west, it didn't matter. Everywhere you saw the sign, and the sign was always negative. It was always, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. It was the no camp. My favorite sign, it was a classic, it was winter, 
It was on the pool, okay, fence that went around the pool. And on the fence, on all sides, multiple times, was, do not throw rocks in the pool. And guess what was at the bottom of this pool all winter long? Massive amount of rocks. It was like inviting students to go, please, throw a rock into me. It was unbelievable. That's part of what the law does. Understand, this is a good thing because when the Scripture says, verse 19, that the law was added, you see it there, look at it, verse 19, added because of transgression. It literally means the law came by a side road. That's what added means, by a side road. Uh, The law feeds into salvation. Write this down, would you? The law is the on-ramp to the gospel highway. The law is the on-ramp to the gospel highway. The, the more we know of the law, the more we see our sin. The more we see our sin, the more we confess our need of a Savior. What did Calvin write? Look at that quote. The law was given in order to make transgressions, your sin, obvious, and in this way to compel men, women, children to acknowledge their what? Their guilt. End quote. It's only when we see our guilt that we see how much we need Jesus The law was given so we, you and I, every single person would run to Jesus Christ. Run to Him. That's what it's for. The law was never meant to provide a way of salvation, but to expose our need of salvation. And though important, the law is not as crucial as the promise of salvation by grace. So Paul goes on to say, look at verse 19 again, that the law has limits. Limits. It required mediators. Verse 19, why then the law was added because of transgressions? And then he says, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator. Paul's reminding the Galatians that God gave the law through two sets of mediators. First through angels and then through Moses to the people of Israel. You know that Deuteronomy 33, Hebrews 2, and even Acts 7 through Stephen before he was stoned, declares that the law was delivered by angels. Delivered by angels. And Paul mentions God giving the law through angels here because it was probably a main point with the Judaizers. False teachers, mark this friends, false teachers love angels. Amen. Okay? They do. In fact, what's amazing about them is that it was probably a main point of the Judaizers because in their mind, given by angels would give extra credibility to the law. It would be, and they would get extra credibility to their view of their errant salvation by law teaching. Back then, false teachers and the rabbis, and like today, angels are very trendy. Would you agree? Super trendy. Angels have their own books. They have calendars. They have movies, television. We even have angels in the outfield, Okay? But real angels, and by the way, kids, there are real angels, another race of beings who serve the Lord, they love Him, they have no interest in being worshipped, not a single one. They're totally absorbed with God, and all they want is for you and I to join Him, them, in adoring God. That's what they want. So Paul's point is this, Abraham's promise of salvation, of grace through faith, was given directly by God, sealed by God. When God spoke to Abraham and promised him salvation, Abraham believed God and he was justified. That's the message of salvation, Old Testament, New Testament. Every single genuinely saved person comes to him by what? 
faith. Old Testament, New Testament, by faith in God and trust in His provision. There was no mediator with salvation by grace. Salvation came directly from God. The law, though, came indirectly through angels, through Moses as mediators. So the promise of salvation came unmediated directly from God to Abraham, but the law came indirectly through a mediator. Now, Paul is not disparaging the law. The law is heavenly in its origin, therefore it's good and holy. But Paul is putting the law in its proper place. A proper place. In the outworking of God's plan. Paul was warning the Galatian believers. I already get this. Warning them not to exalt Moses, not to exalt angels, like the false teachers were, exalting Moses and angels above God Himself, and and basically distort the true gospel. Paul pushes in verse 19 that they understand that it has limits, and it's also, maybe write this down, not only limited, but temporary. Look at the end of verse 19. Temporary. It says, until what? Until the seed would come. Who's the seed? Christ. To whom the promise had been made. The promise of salvation by faith was so important to God that He gave it to Abraham in person. Salvation is personal between you and the Lord Jesus. Write it down. It's not a religion, it's a relationship. It's a relationship. Salvation is personal between you and the Lord Jesus. And so, Jesus, in verse 19, is the seed, He's the offspring, He's the relative of Abraham. Christ is the seed of Abraham who was to come and to whom the promise has been made. And Paul is saying the law was temporary until the Savior would come. Unlike the promise of salvation through belief, which came directly to Abraham, understand the law was delivered by angels to Moses, which made the law secondary and indirect, making the law merely a revealer of sin, but never the Savior of sin. So, number two in your outline. Write it down, kids. The law is conditional, but salvation is unconditional. The law is conditional. Now, this is a tough verse, verse 20. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. You say, what in the world? Listen, the Greek text of verse 20 is very difficult to interpret. Pages and pages written and no conclusions. But Paul seems to be pointing out here that a mediator, literally one who stands between two parties, is needed, but only when there's more than one party that's involved. Now, remember when God gave salvation to Abraham, it was only one party involved. Remember that? Remember that? God gave the covenant directly to Abraham without a mediator. He was uh, the only one involved in making the covenant. Remember, he split the animals. Right, And then he caused Abraham to have a deep sleep. And then God himself is the only one that passed through the covenant. God alone made that covenant. God alone. So this is what Paul's highlighting here. That it was God alone. That responsibility was God's only. God who is one. Who made one promise of salvation to Abraham. So what Paul is highlighting here is the conditional nature of the Mosaic law. Evidenced by a mediator between two parties versus the unconditional nature of the Abrahamic covenant of salvation by grace through faith, evidenced by the fact that God alone cut the covenant with Abraham, only one. That's the focus here. Is it's, it's just unconditional. It's God did it. In any case, Paul once again is emphasizing the priority of salvation over the law, 
and the promise was unilateral and unconditional, but the law is bilateral, right, and conditional. So then the question you got to ask yourself, why would anybody want to, you know, give up and trade in the superior and the eternal for the inferior and the temporary? You understand what's going on here, right? The Galatians are giving up, the, in a sense, the grace of God to kind of start getting circumcised and, and obeying the law and doing the traditions. And, and all of a sudden they're moving away and say, why are you doing that? And Paul's trying to let them know that the law is, is not superior to salvation by grace. It's exposing your need of it, but you shouldn't be trying to seek that. So that leads us to number three, the law is not against salvation. The law is not against salvation. Here's the big assumed question in this section. Did God change his mind in the middle of redemptive history? So instead of redeeming his people solely on the basis of trust and faith in his promise, like Paul teaches, did God change his mind to radically change directions and base redemption, salvation, now upon obedience to the law like the Judaizers teach? The law and the gospel are profoundly different. And they're not opposing, though. Look at verse 21. Is the law, verse 21, then contrary to the promises of God? Is the law contrary to salvation by grace through faith? What's the answer? May it never be. By the way, whenever you see that phrase, strongest negative in the Greek language. When he says that, he's telling you, no, 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 no. Very no. Bada, bada, mamba, jamba, no. Okay? This is it. No, may it never be. Paul anticipated his reader's response. So Paul asked rhetorically, is the law then contrary to salvation by faith? And he's, the preposition there, contrary, is better against, or as it is in the King James Version, or opposed to, as is it in the NIV. Paul is clearly stating that God is not against, he's not opposed to the law. God has a purpose for the law. So the opposition might ask, well then is that purpose for the law somehow at odds with the, God's promise of salvation? And again, he shocks his readers with his OP over the top, hot answer. What is it? Paul uses the strongest Greek negative, may it never be. To disdain the idea that the law and the promise of salvation are opposing each other. They're not opposing each other. Since God gave them both, he does not work against himself, so the law and the promise work in harmony. Again, what is it? It is the on-ramp to the gospel highway. It's the on-ramp. So number four in your outline then, stay with me, the law cannot give salvation or make anyone righteous. The law cannot give salvation or make anybody righteous. Look at the second half of verse 21. For if the law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. You could be saved by the law. This is exactly what the Judaizers have been telling the Galatians. They would say, that's the way you get to be righteous before God. How? You get to be righteous before God, you know, righteously before Him in standing and in lifestyle by keeping the what? That's the Judaizers. They're saying you're going to be saved by keeping the law. But they would affirm the popular sayings that are found like in the Mishnah. Now the Mishnah were the Jewish writings. And they would say things like, lots of Torah means lots of life. See it there in your outline? This is my favorite one. If he has gotten the teachings of Torah, he has gotten himself what? Life eternal. That's what they believed. 
And the reason the law was not at odds with the promise of salvation is that it's a totally different purpose. Again, like the promise of verse 21, the law could not give life. It couldn't give life. It couldn't cause you to be born again. It couldn't cause you to be having life, eternal life in heaven forever. If it could have done so, then the promise of salvation that God gave Abraham was unnecessary. Are you getting it? If you could get there by the law, then that promise that God made that you could be reckoned righteous by faith, by your belief, Abraham, was totally useless. Totally useless. No, the law is transgression increasing. Verse 19, it's not able to impart life. It is transgression increasing and therefore death producing. My favorite illustration of the law. It's like chemotherapy. That's the dreaded term our day. Chemotherapy. When chemotherapy is used to treat cancer, it doesn't give life. It's actually an instrument of death. Right? The chemicals that are poured into your body destroy healthy tissue as well as cancer cells. And during the course of treatment, chemotherapy actually makes the patient feel much worse. But it is all necessary for the patient's long-term health. In the same way, the law makes us worse so that Christ can make us better. The law reveals our greatest need, which is why Paul adds verse 21, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. If the law could have saved you, then gaining a right standing before God could have come by the law, but the law can't save you. Living good can't save you. Keeping religious rules can't save you. Going to church can't save you. Having a Christian family can't save you. Being a nice person with a big fat Bible can't save you. It can't. You're not going to get a righteous standing before God through the law. By being good. By living nice. By being a a good Christian on the outside. The law is what shows us we do not just fall short of God's will. Requiring a little extra effort to be better. But the law shows us we are completely under sin's power. Requiring a rescue that we can't do. Listen, the law does have the power to show us that we are not righteous. But the law can't give us the power to become righteous. Let me say it again. The law does not have the power to to basically, sorry, it has the power to show us we're not righteous. But the law can't give us the power to become righteous. In fact, as we see God's standards and try to keep them and fail to keep them, the law shows us we don't have that power. We can't do it through the law. Listen, you need to be made righteous. If you're going to stand in God's presence, you need to be made righteous. Now, it's not quite the same, but let me help you translate that today. You need to be made perfect. Are you getting it? Perfect. Without sin. To be right with God. So you have a choice. Write down the choice. Are you ready? Try, number one, to live perfect. That's option one. Try to live perfect. Option two, believe in Christ, the perfect one, and he will cover you with his perfect righteousness. Again, one more time. You need to be made righteous. You need to be made perfect. You have two choices. One, try to live perfect by keeping the law or being good or being religious or whatever. Number two option, believe in Christ, the perfect one who will cover you with his perfect righteousness. Those are the only two options you have on planet earth. So Paul shows us the purpose of the law and God's plan. But the Judaizers still objective, accusing the apostle, you've made the law into something evil. You made it bad. 
and that it contradicted the good promise of salvation to Abraham from God. And Paul again affirms, it's not true, that the law did its best work convincing people that they were fully and completely disqualified to spend eternity with God. The law convinces you, you cannot spend eternity with God. The law reveals our greatest need. Number five, write it down, the law reveals the sinfulness of a person. It reveals. Now, so far the apostle's been more dogmatic about what the law can't do than what the law can do. The law cannot give you life. All it can do is reveal sin. The law cannot, you know, basically change you. It does not come straight from God. It was mediated by angels. It will not last forever. It lasted only until the coming of Christ. And even in its apparent failure, the law was doing the work of God. It was not merely temporary. It was preparatory. Preparatory. It's leading the way for something else. Look at verse 22. Look at it. But the Scripture has what? Okay, it's that term you're not supposed to use around your kids. The Scripture has shut up everyone under sin. Now by the Scripture, he means especially the law. And Paul expands the key purpose of the law. Yes, the law reveals sin, but in fact, it is meant to increase it. Why? So that the whole world would be under the law. Listen, the Jews had the law of Moses, but also the Gentiles had God's law written on their hearts, according to Romans 2. So now the entire world is under the law, convicted of sin, and captive to its guilt. Would you just for a minute think of the most godly, nicest person you know? Think about it. Who is that? Identify them. Then look at these verses. Ecclesiastes 7.20 There is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and never sins. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul portrays all mankind shut up under sin, meaning hopelessly trapped in sin. That, that, that word shut up there means like a school of fish caught in a net. They're trapped. The Greek word shut up is actually confined or enclosed in on all sides. And the people are, are basically sinners is the clear teaching of Scripture. All are trapped by sin. All of us are saturated with sin. The law performs a valuable public service. It basically, to all of humanity, it proves that it still has a valuable place in the plan of salvation. The law is powerless to make anyone right with God. The law cannot justify. The law can only condemn. The law cannot make us righteous. The law can only lock us up in a prison of sin. But by showing us that the law cannot save you. The law helps us to look for a Savior. And when friends or family start looking for a way out of their sin, and this is what you pray for. One more time. This is what you pray for. When they realize they can't find their way out of sin, then they discover God's mercy, found in Christ, is the only way to escape. The only way. What did Martin Luther, the great reformer, beginner of the Reformation, he explained it like this. Look at this long quote. The law with its function does contribute to justification, not because it justifies, but because it impels one to the promise of grace and makes it sweet and desirable. Therefore, we do not abolish the law, but we show its true function and use, namely that it is the most useful servant impelling us to Christ. For its function and use is not only to disclose the sin and wrath of God, but also to drive us to Christ. 
Therefore, the principal purpose of the law in theology is to make men not better but worse. That is, it shows them their sin so that by regeneration of sin, they may be, recognition, excuse me, recognition of sin, they may be humbled and frightened and worn down and so may long for grace and for the blessed offspring of Jesus Christ. Listen, your friends, your family who are lost right now, Romans chapter 1, are suppressing the truth. Correct? Hey, you want a key to our society right now? Why is there that strong agenda going on? Pressing, pressing, pressing. Why? Because they want to suppress the truth. They don't want to face the law. They don't want sin to expose them. And therefore, they're going to suppress it. Why? Listen, that's our culture. And you know John chapter 16, verse 8. What's it say? John 16, verse 8. It says, And He, the Holy Spirit, when He comes, He will convict the entire world, saved and unsaved, everyone, the lost, automatically know concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Do your unsaved friends know they're sinners? Yes or no? Yes, they do. They may say they don't. They will deny it, but they do know it. They know that they need to be righteous before God. That they have to going to stand in judgment before a holy... They know that intrinsically. When they deny that, they're actually denying what they know to be true. Your unsaved family friends, your friends in classroom, your neighbors, your office mates, all intrinsically know they're sinful, that they must be made righteous, and judgment is coming, and no sin that they commit will be forgotten. They will answer to God for their entire life, and the law only makes that knowledge clearer and more pointed, driving some to Jesus Christ. You want them to see their sin. Which leads us to number six, the law drives a sinner to receive salvation by faith. The law drives a sinner. The law itself cannot justify, but what it can do is drive us to faith, which does justify the ultimate purpose of shutting up men under sin and death is verse 22. Look at it, the second half. But the Scripture has shut up everyone under sin. What's the purpose, Paul? So that. There it is. So that the promise of faith, that salvation by grace through faith, in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who what? Believe. The law shows us our sin, but the Gospel shows us the way of escape from sin's penalty and how to hold an abundant life now and eternal life forever. How to take hold of that. In that sense, the law and the gospel are complementary. You know what the, the law and the gospel are? Right now, just look up here. Just in case. The law is one hand. Grabbing Lonnie with one hand. And the gospel is the other hand grabbing the other shoulder. And it's turning him to face Jesus Christ saying, you need Christ. That's what they do. It's two, two things that turn your shoulders to get you to face Jesus Christ. And every Christian in this room knows that's true. That's what happened to you. Understand, John Stott, listen to this quote. It's incredible. Read it with me, out silently, as I read out loud. Not until the law has bruised and smitten us, will we admit our need of the gospel and bind up our wounds. Not until the law has arrested and imprisoned us will we pine for Christ to set us free. Not until the law has condemned and killed us 
Will we call upon Christ for justification in life? Not until the law has driven us to despair of ourselves will we ever believe in Jesus. Not until the law has humbled us even to hell will we turn to the gospel and raise us to heaven. The law and the gospel are two ways of, not two ways of salvation, not, but the two means that God uses to point us to the one way of salvation. Verse 22, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who what? Believe. So take this home with me. Are you ready? Letter A. Are you one of the almost saved? Almost saved. You know, the human heart, would you agree, is hard to figure out? Especially your own. Knowing you're saved can get confusing. Faith without works is what? Dead, but salvation is not of works. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, but you also know that every church has got saved wheat and unsaved tares. There are those who are genuinely hot saved and those who are lukewarm unsaved. Some who have done great works for Christ and will hear, depart from me, I never knew you. Wow. You know, the doctrine of eternal security can't be broken. Once saved, always saved. But assurance of salvation, our experience of that is a life direction. Are you following Christ? Are you obeying His word? So many testimonies repeat the same common theme. I hoped I was saved and now I know I am. Many church attenders are Christ professors who mend their ways and do religious duties and clean up their lives. They make tearful surrenders. They do that at church services. They give their lives to Jesus. They ask Him into their hearts. But so often, they are really only resolving to live good and be very religious hoping that this would gain favor and blessing of God. And at this stage, they tend to have a lot of emotional ups and downs, feeling good when they make a spiritual commitment, despondent when they fail to keep a promise to God. They often live in fear. The students call them sus, suspect. I didn't think it was that funny, Pat. (laughs) so here's the test are you ready is Christ in you and does he show through you 2 Corinthians 13 5 do you have a relationship with Christ John 17 3 relationship even on your darkest day do you still want to obey Christ Romans 6 17 let me put it another way on your most sinful day you still want to obey Christ Jesus Christ, Romans 6, 17. Though it's never enough, are you willing to do anything for Christ? Luke 14. Though we falter often, do you desire Christ would be your first love above anyone or anything? Revelation 2. If not, would you cry out for salvation today? Ask for repentance and faith. Plead for a new nature. Plead for a new inner person. Talk to anybody, anybody who invited you. Talk to people at our doors. Talk to any member of our church. Don't be an almost Christian. 
don't be an almost Christian. Letter B. Have you embraced both law and grace? Law and grace. Law and grace work together in true salvation, like two hands. Many people want a sense of joy and acceptance, but they will not admit the seriousness of their sin. They'll not listen to the law's searching and painful analysis of their lives and their hearts. But unless you see how helpless and profoundly sinful you are, the message of salvation will not be exhilarating or liberating. Unless you know how big your debt of sin is, you cannot have any idea how big the payment that Christ paid was. If you think you're not that bad, the idea of grace will never change you. The law shows you who you really are, what you really are. The law is a mirror, and it doesn't allow for makeup, externals, or fancy clothes. It exposes you just who you really are, the law. The law is an accurate mirror showing you to be a vile sinner with a nature that loves to sin. It reveals that you can never rise above the law, escape its judgment. The law shows you you must eternally suffer for your sins. The law shows you that. But the purpose of the law is also to turn you, to point you to the only way of escape. The law points you to see Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our friend, our King, our God, as He really is. And as Savior, the one who perfectly obeyed God's law on our behalf and then died in our place so that you might receive salvation. He did that. The law allows us to love Christ and enables us to show our love in grateful obedience to Him. For when we are transformed, now the law, that which is found repeated in the New Testament, the royal law, the law of love, is what we pursue. Are you ready? Not because you have to but because you want to. We love the law because it's the will of the one that we love more than life itself. We love obedience because we seek to please the one who sacrificed everything. We love following Christ by keeping His word because we know it's the place of blessing. So would you today search your heart and ask the Lord, is there anything Anything I'm doing, anything I'm not doing that doesn't please you. And by the power of the Spirit, ask to repent so that you might walk according to His will. He deserves all of our life as a living sacrifice. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for this message. We pray, Father, now that You would accept it as we offer our lives to you we give our praise we give our gifts we give our fellowship we all that we do today would be for your glory we pray that you would be pleased with how we respond thank you again for your word thank you again for your love thank you again for your law and we pray that you would be honored in jesus name amen Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, 
please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.